introduction to the book of Genesis, its second part. And as you know, last week we opened our introduction uh, with a year opening message, and we noted that God's beginnings always include his deliverance. And we, we will see that, we saw that last time uh, in a simple truth, very simple truth, that we loudly proclaimed because the book loudly proclaims it, that sin destroys, God delivers. And we see that as a pattern throughout the book of Genesis. Now, I've been told, and I was told last week after that message, that was a pretty simple way to look at it. And, um, you know, you can almost apply that throughout the whole Bible. And that's exactly the point. Because the book of beginnings introduces a simple concept that becomes extremely complex. It's like that diamond ring. I'm assuming most of you ladies received a diamond ring when you were proposed to, and then you probably still wear it today. Some of you maybe had another jewel or there's another tradition that that goes with your culture, or your heritage, uh, rather than the exchange of rings or uh, rather than a diamond ring. But a diamond is always placed in a setting. Now, why is it placed in a setting? Well, it's placed in a setting to secure it to the ring, for one thing. But when you choose a setting, you choose a setting that is most appropriate to the diamond itself. Now, um, men, if you want uh, uh, education on diamond rings, uh, I often teach young men, you know, the, the three, the four C's, I should say, of diamonds. Um, and so you can, you can ask me after what that is, but, uh, but one of the C's is the cut of the stone and a, a gemologist will tell you that the perfect cut can take a diamond and make it the most brilliant stone you've ever seen. So some diamonds demand a round cut. Some diamonds demand, uh, a, a sort of an elongated or a pear-shaped cut, or a marquee cut. Some diamonds demand a square, a princess-shaped cut, or an emerald, a, a rectangular cut. But every diamond has a perfect cut. And the good gemologists know how to cut the proper diamond and make it look beautiful. But it's not just the shape that matters, it's the dimension that matters. So, for example, if you have a round stone where two-thirds of the stone is below the diamond and hidden in the setting, it does not reflect the light properly, and it looks very dull, even though it's a beautiful and a large stone. So, with the cut, it has to have the right dimensions. And the right cut, shape of the stone, with the right dimensions, will reflect and refract light in the most pleasing and beautiful manner. Furthermore, the appropriate setting will then allow the light to shine through that stone in the right way so that everybody walking by can see its brilliance. And that's why uh, every time someone gets engaged, generally you see for the first several weeks or even months, the woman walking around like this. Yes, I would like to buy that at Starbucks. Yes, please. I take a grande latte, right? Yes. Yes, I would like to buy this outfit today. Yes. Oh, is my hand just imminently stuck like this? Yes, it is. Have you seen my ring? Here it is, right? This is the way that happens for most ladies that are determining and dis displaying the brilliance of their stone. And yet that simple illustration is, uh, and there's complexity, isn't there, in the stone? It takes 
It takes skill to identify the proper cut of the stone. It takes precision to make sure that 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 the facets are, are cut appropriately and not hidden by the setting. It takes wisdom to know which setting to put that stone in and how, how it will best display the brilliance of the stone uh, that, is, that is on display in the ring. And in the same way, God, the master designer, the, the primary narrator of this incredible book of beginnings, God has set for us and fashioned for us a narrative that displays his glory and his brilliance in the midst of a sin-cursed, destroyed world. Yes, friends, we will see in the book of Genesis that sin destroys. But we will also see, setting the stage for all of the narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that God delivers. And both of those truths, wrapped hand in glove, will demonstrate the overarching theme of Scripture itself, and that is the doxological purpose or the glory of God. God's glory is displayed through his ability to deliver despite sin and its destructive nature. And so last week we noted that this simple theological truth uh, showcased itself in a very uh, clear breakdown. We looked at the book analytically. Uh, we inspected two facets of the beautiful gemstone of the book of Genesis last week, that Genesis displays sin's destruction and God's deliverance by its narrative structure, recall that last time, and also uh, sin, sin, uh, sin's destructive power and its um, God's deliverance is displayed in its theological nature as well. So the book itself, in its narrative structure, the way God designed it, the way God laid it out, the way God used the human instrument of Moses to write it down, with Moses's education, his knowledge of of, of how to write an ancient uh, history as a prince of Egypt, God utilized Moses as he wrote the book and he structured it in such a way that displays God's deliverance. And so the theology of Genesis does one and the same. Today, we're going to dig a little deeper. So we scratch the surface and introduce to you two ways to look at Genesis that both display God's deliverance and the destructive nature of sin. Today, we're going to dig a little deeper, and this is my final introductory message. Um, notice, I know I didn't talk about some of the controversial things. Um, I just blanketly said, Moses is the author, and that's a fact. Moses is the author of Genesis. Um, you don't need to know whether there was a Yahwehist or Elohimist or a priestly Yahwehist and Elohimist or the Deuteronomist or any of those things. Moses is the author of Genesis. Um, it is clear and concise. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, it was inspired, breathed out by God, delivered to Moses, and he wrote it using his own unique personality, his unique giftedness, and his unique upbringing. It was penned between the years of 440, 1446 B.C. and 1406 B.C., because those are the lifespan of, of Moses uh, prior, just right at the Exodus during his wilderness wanderings, and then right before Moses' death, so that the second generation would thus enter into the promised land under Joshua. So when was Genesis written? Between 1446 B.C. and 1406. Now remember, B.C. means before Christ, 
Therefore, we work backwards. It's a countdown to zero. Zero presumably being birth of Christ, although there's a debate on whether it was six or three or one. Anyway, I digress. 1446 to 1406, somewhere around there. And there's a little bit of wiggle room, uh, you know, on those dates, but not much. Um, so those are the dates of the authorship, Moses as its author. But we noted in Genesis 1 through uh, 11 last time, and we'll get there in a moment, but we noted last time in Genesis 1 to 11 that it, it discusses the beginning of history. Was Moses around the beginning of history? And the simple answer to that is, of course, no. So when we read Genesis 1 to 11, we, we clearly see that the divine narrator, God, is giving to Moses the truth of be, the beginnings of human history and thus the beginnings of all history. And so we trust and recognize that the only person that was there to see it with his own eyes was God. As we mentioned last time, we know God is introduced in a triune way in Scripture. And even the first mention of God in the beginning, God, uh, the word used in Hebrew is Elohim. And Elohim is a plural, uh, but we don't translate it plurally because God displays his nature in three persons. And then we find in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, a dialogue amongst the Trinity um, as he discusses the creation of man. And we find God dialoguing about man making man in his own image. Later, as I mentioned last Sunday in John 1, 1 and John uh, and Colossians 1, 17 and all throughout the New Testament, we find that God, the second person of the Trinity through the son, Jesus, was the master builder, as it were. He was the, the, the divine architect or so, uh, or I should say the contractor involved in creation. So we see right in Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3 that God, the Father, uh, created. So we see God is involved in the, in the master plan of the universe. We're told that Jesus was the one who did it and that the Holy Spirit was involved in uh, the actual production of it. So I, I know that every human illustration breaks down, but, you know, I, as many of you know, I've labored with my hands for many years um, to work a second job before you took me on full time. And I did carpentry, drywall repair, finish trim, hanging cabinets, those sorts of things. So I think often of construction terms when I think of this kind of thing. So I think of God as the, 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 the architect, God the Father as the master planner. And I think of Jesus as the contractor. He's the one who actually goes in. And I think of the Holy Spirit as the power or the power tools that he used, okay? Um, now, again, every illustration completely fails and falls apart, so please forgive me. I'm not trying to be a modalist here, I promise. Um, God is one person or one God in three persons, and it is a divine mystery. But we see that displayed throughout Genesis. So as we look at the context today, we want to ask the same question we asked last week. How does Genesis showcase sin's destruction and God's deliverance? Well, I am so glad you asked that tremendously insightful and intuitive question. And today, like last week, we answered that with two uh, observational analytical tools through the narrative structure and the theological message. 
Today, we're actually going to talk about uh, the book of Genesis revealing sin's destructive nature and God's deliverance through its characters and in its chronology. So how many points do we have today? Just two. The first one is rather robust. The second one is a little shorter. So as we look at the context today, let's jump in and be reminded, what is the kernel of truth that we will discuss today regarding this character display and the chronology of Genesis that showcases sin's destruction and God's deliverance? Well, the answer is this. You and I must trust our God who delivers, and we must reject sin that destroys that is the ultimate application that we take away. We must trust our God who delivers, and we must reject sin that destroys. So as we unfold these, this twofold uh, recognition of the, the way we break down and sort of where, now think of it this way, what did I liken it to? Genesis as a gemstone, and I, I picked diamond because that's the classic engagement ring, right? Uh, so think of it as, Ladies, we looked at your engagement ring last week like this. This week, we're going to look at it like this. Right? So we're going to change the angle. Last week, we saw the theological message and the narrative structure. This week, we're going to look at the characters and the chronology. Okay? Now, we can't obviously spend uh, a lot of time on both of those, but we could. We could spend, I could build an entire class for grad school on th these two topics and probably one topic alone. I could build an entire class on just the characters of Genesis, but we won't. Today, we're going to get an overview. And so as we look uh, at this question that we've asked and we answer it, we're going to say simply this, since Genesis reveals sin's destructive nature and God's deliverance through its characters and its chronology, then let's first of all take a look at the first division that displays God's deliverance, and that's its characters. So let's, let's go ahead and dive into this. God's deliverance displayed through Genesis characters, Genesis uh, possessive there, Genesis's characters. All right. So as we look, turn to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, the first character that we have, as we mentioned last time, is God. In the beginning, God. Okay? Um, if, we, if we were to turn to uh, Revelation 22, which we just finished an immense series on Revelation, you went through 44 messages with me. Uh, it ends this, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The book begins with God and ends with Jesus. Okay? So remember, this is a coherent whole. It was written over the course or, or uh, transcribed and penned. God breathed out over the course of uh, approximately 18, well, 1600 years or so by 39, at least 39 different authors all of whom were inspired by God. So the first character we see is God. But we're going to see sin's destructive nature and God's deliverance in the first human characters, Adam and Eve. And so as we look at the text, first and foremost, I'd like you to draw your attention to chapters 1 to 3, and we discuss Adam and Eve. We are not going to read all of this information today, just so you know. So you're going to have to look at the text 
If you have a physical copy of the Bible, maybe you have headings in your Bible that help you. Um, maybe you, if you have a digital copy, hopefully those headings are pr prominent and we're going to hit some of those headings as we walk through this. But how does the, the characters, how do the characters in Genesis display God's deliverance and sin's destruction? Well, some of these are pretty obvious, okay? The sweeping narrative of the first three chapters leaves the reader breathless, does it not? And in all of the amazing creative power of all, our almighty sovereign God, as he, uh, as he begins the, the universe and its intricacies are displayed for all of us to see. Yet we focus on two seemingly small and insignificant individuals. So the, 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 the narrative opens up with this vast, explosive, powerful creation of God from all of the, the expanse of the heavens, the universe and its incredible expanse that is just absolutely unfathomable to us. And yet the narrative hones down on two simple, small, and what seem to be, in our minds, insignificant people. In fact, if we were to uh, quantify, and I don't even think that it's a calculable quanti quanti way to quantify it, although uh, physicists postulate the number of uh, atoms in the universe, right? So I suppose it is quantifiable. What is the size, relative size of a man and woman compared to the vastness of the universe? Well, I'm sure we could ask a physicist to uh, calculate that and several years from now, they would tell us the answer, <laughs> unless there's a powerful math calculator now. So sometimes I throw this out and somebody will email me and give me an actual number and that's always fun. Uh, but I have a feeling it's an exponentially small amount compared to the vastness of the universe. What is the size of the average human being? And so, as we see in the narrative, we think of the smallness of man, but God displays the largesse of man and the importance of man. Does he not? He focuses in chapters one and two on God's specific physical creation, his tactile experience in physically shaping Adam with his own hands and then with his own mouth, breathing into Adam the breath of life. He does, does not do that with any other created thing. No star, no astronomical body, no comet, no asteroid, no meteor, uh, no angelic or spiritual being receives this honor only mankind. And by the way, he doesn't just stop with Adam. He has a little bit of a lesson planned uh, for Adam. He lets Adam kind of name a pairs of animals. And then Adam looks around and says, hey, uh, where's the one that's comparable to me? And God causes sleep to come upon him. And with his own hands, again, God shapes from Adam Eve and breathes into her. So with the same care and the same physical tactile concern, God makes both man and woman co-equal, joint heirs together of the grace of life, meant for partnership. And both of them have been given a commission, Adam prior to Eve, and then Adam and Eve together to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all of the earth, everything in the sky, everything on land, and everything in the oceans. They are to have dominion, oversight, there to rule over it. So the importance of Adam and Eve are highlighted. Why are we talking about this? Because I believe the characters in Genesis display sin's destructive power, but God's incredible deliverance. Here in chapters one and two, 
are, are displaying for us the beginnings of God's perfect plan. Now, there's a couple of things that we can highlight here. We note that God not only was incredibly involved with the beginnings of mankind, but contrary to what probably one of the most famous American deists, Thomas uh, Jefferson, stated, God is not like the divine clockmaker who wound it up and then walked away. God becomes intimately involved with his chief creation, mankind, and he begins to walk and talk with them in the cool of the garden. He creates a perfect place of perfect fellowship that has perfect sustenance, water, food, uh, restfulness, and care, and he himself has a perfect fellowship and relationship with them, and he begins to instruct and teach them in the garden. One thing we noted last time I mentioned 17 times, God mentions good. Something is good as creation is good in the text, which then leads us to a couple theological principles. And I need to move on. But this is that was the important foundation for the instruction moving forward. God built a perfect world. In on his world, he, he put central to it a perfect place, a garden that had perfect uh, environment for a perfect fellowship and a perfect relationship with his perfect creation, Adam and Eve. Now, in the story, in the narrative that unfolds, we find something very brutal that comes along. Now, the brutality of what we've seen, as I mentioned last time, is like a nuclear explosion that has a ripple effect and awake throughout all of human history until the consummation of the age, which we already studied in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 and 22. But here what we find is the entrance of sin. Prior to that, there is a mention of a tree that would give the knowledge of good and evil. We are meant in the story to know that that tree is not inherently bad. We are meant to know that because 17 times God says everything he made was good. And he said evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two, evening and morning, day three, evening and morning, day four, evening and morning, day five, evening and morning, day six. And on the seventh day, evening and morning, day seven, he rested from all his labor. So we are meant to know that everything created on all those six days is good, including the tree that would impart the knowledge of good and evil. And I liken it often this way to, uh, to folks that I'm explaining this to. Um, you likely have power in your house, whether it's uh, from the power company or it's generated by a diesel generator, right? You Or it's hydraulically powered, but more than likely you have power. You have electricity in your house, correct? Is the electrical outlet dangerous? And the answer is, of course, it can be dangerous. If your little one were to wander over there with slobbery wet fingers and stick two of them in the circuit and complete that circuit, your little one would burn themselves, would, would, would be in danger, correct? So is it dangerous to have power? Is the power then evil because it has the ability to do harm? And the answer is no. But do you educate, do you need to educate your child as to the appropriate use of the power? And the answer is yes. And so this tree that presented the knowledge of good and evil was a tree that was good. 
that our good God would thus teach, as we know he was walking when talking with Adam and Eve, he was instructing and educating, he would teach them himself what good and evil would be. And the presumption is, he says all trees are good to eat. So Eve even said it looks good, it smells good, it feels good. And when she tasted it, it tasted good. So the point is, it was good. It was just not good in that time. They usurped God, jumped over God's will, and decided, uh, or jumped over God's, uh, God's plan, command, and decided breaking God's law to plunge all the human race into sin. I'm spending a lot of time on this because it's really important. Then we're going to breeze through the other characters. So as we think about this, there are four theological principles I don't have on the screen. And so when this is published to Faith Life, you won't have these notes. So if you want to write them down, go for it. This is your one and only time to do that. Uh, number one, chapter one showcases some simple theological truths. And the first one is this. God is all powerful. And everything that he does is good. You see that in, in chapter one. Oh, I just lost my proclaim. God is all-powerful, and everything that he does is good. That is clear in chapter 1. The second reality is God is sovereign, and he is the one who defines good and evil. You see that? God is sovereign, and he is the one who defines good and evil. This is a theological principle that is an unbroken principle uh, from Genesis. The third one is this. God made mankind special and he gave them dominion. Now there's lots of other principles we could make, but this one is important to our discussion today. God made mankind special and he gave them dominion, oversight. And then the last one is this. Mankind's response to God affects all of creation. Now, we see that clearly in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In fact, if you want, um, turn to Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, and I'm going to read that. This is after Adam and Eve get confronted, after God curses the serpent, curses uh, Adam and Eve and the earth. Um, in verse 22, he says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, how does this advance the narrative that God is sovereign and he is the one who defines good and evil and God is all powerful and everything that he does is good? How is a negative a positive? And the answer is clear. It says very clearly, unless he put out his hand to take the tree of life and eat and live in a sin-cursed, broken state of rebellion forever, I am going to put him away from the tree so that it no longer tempts him to partake of it. So he's no longer access to a forever state of destruction the goodness and mercy of God. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. It's going to be hard for me to follow without it. Thank you so much. I don't know what happened to that, but it, it happened. All right. Awesome. 
hey, look at that. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. He did it again. Last week, he did it to me as well. Thank you, Pastor Stephen, for making this so special. There you go. There's the four truths. So they will be published to Faith Life, and I am not, I'm not a liar, right? They will now be published to Faith Life in the bulletin, and you will have them in perpetuity as your notes. So the second reality here then, um, God made mankind special, gave them dominion. His response affects all of all of a creation because we find then just the next page in my Bible over chapter four uh, and verse one. We have the next um, recognition after Adam and Eve. Who's next? Cain and Abel. And so immediately following this this destruction and uh, rejection. Did you need, did I need to give you guys time to write that down? I will. I'll give you time to write those four down if you want them. Immediately following the expulsion from the garden, we have this narrative in chapter four about Adam knowing his wife. That's, that is the, um, Hebrew euphemism for, uh, having sexual relations with his wife and conceiving a child. It says, knowing his wife, she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, you think, why would she say that? Well, remember, go back just a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God speaking to the serpent that he curses. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, my Bible capitalizes the S there, the second seed. That is an interpretational capitalization but it is an appropriate capitalization. And the word used for seed is, is the idea of an external, um, uh, an external thing that would be uh, given to the woman so that she would have the ability to, or her offspring would then crush the serpent's head and his heel be bruised. So how does she take this promise? She says, God has given me a man, a male child, um, God has given me the answer. I've acquired a man from the Lord. And notice, ironically here, who does she say she got this from? But wait a second. It says Adam knew Eve, his wife. Why does she say I got it from the Lord? But I thought she got the seed from Adam. I mean, we're talking about the physical relationship here, right? She understood by the way, why is it so hard for us to believe the promise in Isaiah 7, 14? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and he, he shall be called Emmanuel. Well, it shouldn't be. Both are from the Lord. Eve uh, received a seed from Adam, but the, the seed was from the Lord, and she claimed that seed to be the promised one who would deliver mankind from sin. And yet the narrative shows us really clearly, Cain is not the deliverer. In fact, Cain is broken by the curse of sin, just like all of us. And because Cain has his sin nature, he's a sinner by birth, no matter what he does to fight against that nature, he is destroyed by sin. Now, uh, in the narrative of Cain and Abel, we see a contrast. Sin always destroys, but God always delivers. Cain disobeyed, and just like Adam and Eve, when they presented themselves to God there in the garden with leaves or clothes of their own making, they were weaving together their own righteous attempt to present themselves before God in a holy way. Maybe God won't notice that uh, we've broken his law. Let's show up in our, our holy clothing. 
and God rejects their holy clothing, he slaughters an animal and clothes them with animal skin. Thus, the first mention of a substitutionary sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to atone for, to cover the sins of mankind. In covering Adam and Eve's nakedness, he was covering, he was symbolically showcasing the need for their sin to be covered by the substitute of blood. Another had to be killed in their place. And so what happens, Cain presents an offering, which is not a blood sacrifice. It's a work of his own hands. It's a presentation of his own righteousness. He presents the fruit of the field, things that he intended and kept. And no doubt he was probably a fantastic gardener. Far, I, I did not get that gift, by the way. I can't even keep aloe vera alive, which is impossible to kill. But apparently I do it all the time. So uh, I don't know what it is. I just don't have a green thumb, but Cain apparently did. And yet we find in the narrative of Genesis 4, Abel, Abel presents of the firstlings of the flock and his sacrifice is accepted. Now Abel dies at the brutality of his brother Cain. Cain is cursed. And now you find through Cain and Abel that Cain and Abel uh, showcase a totally different, a totally different following. Cain followed the way of Adam's first choice. He became cursed and he, he was pushed away. He was expelled. And all of Cain's descendants follow the way of Cain, of sin against God and rebellion against God. There's another man that God, is, God gives Eve and his name is Seth. Seth then is tracked in chapter five, and we see Seth all the way to Noah. In fact, the genealogy of chapter five is fascinating. We won't get into it now. We'll get into it when I preach on it later. But what you have is a contrast between the lineage of Cain, those who disobeyed God, broke God's law, went their own way, are marked by a curse by God. By the way, there's all kinds of foolishness that are preached about the mark on Cain. There is no, it, this is not an ethnic mark. This is, that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And there's one, one race. It's called the human race. And just because we have different physical features and different skin tones does not make one color or one ethnicity or one, uh, one physical feature better than another. That is foolishness and it's unbiblical and it's ungodly. And any Christian or otherwise that promotes that is unbiblical and ungodly, period. Okay, there's one race. So this mark on Cain has nothing to do with his demographic location or his skin color. That is just garbage. And just throw it out and ignore it because it's polluting God's perfect message. Whatever the mark was on Cain, we have no idea. But it was clear that Cain was a disobeyer of God and he rebelled against God. The lineage that we see in chapter five is a lineage of Seth to Noah. Now I want you to know as we get here, uh, Seth and Noah, what are we talking about? We're talking about characters that showcase the narrative in Genesis that God delivers, but sin destroys. So after highlighting the destruction of Cain and the, the, the proper way to sacrifice by Abel, Seth becomes the new Abel essentially. Cain goes the way of self, sin, and flesh. Seth and his descendants go the way of God, but there's only one of Seth's descendants that survive. And if you do the math properly, and I, I didn't take time to do this 
pre-Diluvian, but the post-Diluvian I did. Uh, Pre-Diluvian, um, I believe you take this properly, um, Methuselah and Lamech die in the flood. So even the, the righteous lineage of Seth, when we see, when the Bible says that all the flesh, all flesh is corrupt and the whole earth is full of violence. How many people got on the ark, friends? Eight souls. And Noah's dad and grandfather were still around and they refused to get on the ark. That, that is a sobering reality. That even righteous Seth and his lineage was corrupted by the, the total and complete destructive nature of sin. Friends, sin destroys. Can I just, can you let me just be a preacher for a second and stop the teaching mode? Can I tell you, do not flirt with sin. It will burn you. It will take you farther than you want to go. It will leave you longer than you want to stay. And it will have consequences far greater than you want to bear. Do not flirt with sin. Do not, do not give in to your flesh's desire to do your own thing, go your own way, because your way and the way of the sinner is hard. That's what the Bible says. Listen, God is our deliverer, but sin is a destroyer. And the father of sin, Satan, wants nothing more than to destroy you. Friend, do not give in to sin because it destroys so even in the lineage of Seth and Noah, we have a, a sad, it's a bittersweet tune, right? Even Seth's lineage dies out during the flood, except Noah and his wife and his three sons are saved. And so what we find then is in chapter six, uh, eight, and uh, chapter six and eight, we find Genesis uh, displaying Noah's generation and the flood. And we find that the whole earth is full of violence. Why? Because sin destroys and sin when it is conceived brings forth death right lust when it's conceived brings forth sin sin when it's finished brings forth death that's the right quote from james the point is simply this sin has consequences and the ultimate consequence is death which is separation from god and for the for the human it is separation from god in a very real place called hell and ultimately in the lake of fire but god delivers what did God promise to, to, to Eve? I will give you a seed. She thought it was Cain. It wasn't. It was Seth. Through Seth, there's Noah. God saves all of mankind through Noah and Noah's generation of the flood. The entire earth, we call this for theologians, we call this recreation. It was, uh, or anti-creation and recreation. So God destroys the old earth and he recreates the new earth. Now I'm going to say more about Seth when I get to preach on him later. Because I, I've done the math, and Seth uh, outlives everybody but his great-great-grandson. And so Seth, uh, Seth was alive to see Isaac on the earth. That's how long Seth lived. Seth got to see the child of the promise to Abram. Uh, his grandson got to see um, all the way up to almost, well, Joseph was born before his grandson died. So... Seth's lineage got to see God's interventive promise through a singular lineage that would then birth the 12 nations or 12 tribes of Israel and then become the Messiah through the Messiah's lineage. And Seth got to see with his own eyes the child of the promise. If you do the math right, and I've done the math and I've consulted it, and I'll show it to you later. 
So Noah's generation in the flood. The next character that we see here is Noah's sons and the curse. So there is an insertion in, the, in this uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem being the firstborn, Japheth being the lastborn, Ham being the center child. Ham is mentioned as the younger child and then his descendant Canaan. Uh, have you ever heard of the Canaanites? Okay, the Canaanites are descendants of Ham. The Canaanites get displaced. We don't have time to discuss Ham's sin and why he was cursed. But I can tell you right now, I can tell you now, we have been unearthing for 160 years throughout Israel, Palestine, and its surrounding Edom, communities of, of Seir or Edom, Edomites, the lower portion of Judah. We have been unearthing Canaanite uh, art, and I should say Canaanite pornography for 170 years. And it's just been now that archaeologists are beginning to publish it. It is so grotesque and so heinous that it actually equals to the reason why God said, when you enter into the land of Canaan, I want you to wipe out every one of its descendants because their sins have come to full fruition. And some of the things, the sexual practices that the people of Canaan did were so heinous, we have, don't even have them in our society today. And our society is pretty bad. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that because we don't want to go gutter diving today. Okay. But I said that because there's a cryptic understanding of what Ham did to his dad. And I think it was sexually perverse. And I think that what that sexual perversion reaped in Canaan and the Canaanites is one of the reasons why God sent the Israelites to wipe out the tribe or the lineage of Ham. Okay. Remember uh, these, 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 um, these truths that are displayed in these genealogies show us one primary thing. We're only focusing on one thing today. Sin destroys, but God delivers. And so sin, the sin of Ham, leads to complete and utter destruction in Ham's life and Canaan's life, his multi-generational descendants. But through Shem, God would send a deliverer. And that message of deliverance is clear through the characters of Genesis. Are you tracking with me now? Did that, did that bring us back on, on track? The train is still moving in the right direction. Okay, good. So let's go on to Babel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. You have a little hiccup in here. You have the Japhethites and the Hamites. And the Japhethites and the Hamites, and likely the Shemites as well, decided that they would unanimously, one-mindedly do exactly what the forefathers prior to the flood did, and they would bind together, they would reject God, they would follow their own way, they would build their own city, and they would they would rebel against God's one and only command that he gave to, to Noah and his sons after the ark, be fruitful and populate the whole planet earth, go spread out. And instead, they decided to gather one in the same uh, and build a tower uh, to declare themselves like God, to control their own destiny. So God comes down, confuses human language, and that thus they must disperse because now they can no longer communicate with one another. So they disperse all over the globe. So you ask, why do we have ethnicity uh, features? Why are, why are some of us browner than others? Why do some of us have different eye shapes or different nose shapes or different kind of hair textures? And the answer is simply because after Babel, humanity, remember, there's one race. All of us are humans. 
All of us have varying degrees of melanin in our skin and varying types of hair texture and eye color, et cetera, et cetera. It's because when God diversified human humanity uh, through their language, they then populated the planet in different regions. And then they began to have children and expand their generations in that region. And those dominant features began to showcase in children, right? Does that make sense? And so this is what it is. But does that make one better than the other? Of course not. There's one race. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We all are important to God. God has made each and every one of us in his image and likeness, regardless of our skin tone, right? Regardless of our, our ethnic features, regardless whether we're Italian or not, right? So the point is simply this. God has in this Babel showcased the folly of sin. Sin destroys, and Babel was a, a, an epic failure and a destruction. Had God, uh, uh, had man, can you imagine if Babel didn't occur, the scientific advancements that we'd be at now? If we just decided to spread out over the earth with one language, but do what God had obeyed God to do? It's only been in the last 160 years in the Industrial Revolution and the modern era that we have harness the power of the rocket and space flight, that we have been able to dive to some of the deepest depths of the ocean on our planet. We've been able to explore the moon and send rockets to another planet and, uh, and send out satellites to the outer solar system. Can you imagine if 2000, well, 3000 years ago, we did, we, we had one language and we were obedient to God, how far we, how far advanced we'd be now. Maybe we would be like the Jetsons, meet George Jetson. Jane, his wife, right? Now you're all going to be singing that. You're welcome. Okay, so as we look then on the, the next point here is Shem and Terah and Terah to Abraham. So we find uh, a descendant lineage in Genesis 11, 10 through 32. And Shem to Terah, Terah to Abraham. Again, we're going to showcase through the character development of Genesis, God's deliverance. Sin destroys, God delivers. And I literally just now looked at the clock and I realized I am completely out of time. And I am going to have to just pick this up in, on January 22nd. I apologize. I wanted to finish this message. I actually have a whole nother point and I have more people to talk about even, but uh, it would just be inappropriate for me to take more time this morning. I do want to say this as we conclude, and I apologize for the teachy and less preachy nature of this message. Remember, we must trust our God who delivers, and we must reject sin that destroys. When you look at the characters in Genesis, and we are going to spend time looking at some of these characters in Genesis, and that's the reason why I've spent so much time in point number one, and I just, I lost track of time this morning. You know me. Uh, we need to know that when we choose sin, we will receive the path of destruction and its consequences. Now, is there restoration and forgiveness? Absolutely. But even a man after God's own heart, David, dealt with the consequences of his sin. And they were destructive and hurtful and generationally painful. So friends, when we choose God, we always choose his deliverance. And I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ, who has delivered me from this body of death. Amen. Because now in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. Now I'm, I am a new creature in him. And I have God's Holy Spirit indwelling and the power to say yes to God and no to sin. 
And friends, that is the key to sin's destruction and my deliverance. God destroyed sin through the second Adam, Jesus, and he will deliver me eternally through Jesus alone. And when I walk by faith and not by sight, and I put my faith in Christ for my daily living, and I claim the gospel every single day, I can say, yes, God, no sin. And so friends, sin destroys, but God delivers. And we must trust our God who delivers, and we must reject sin that destroys. Come back on January 22nd, and we will talk about the rest of this outline, God willing, And then I'm going to launch on the 29th. Well, I'm not because we have a special speaker on the 29th. I'm going to launch on February the 5th into an actual deep dive into the exegesis of Genesis. And right now, Pastor Stephen and I um, uh, are going to be walking through this book together. Um, I have personally mapped out a total. I think we're going to cover the whole book in, in 58 messages, 58 to 60 messages. So we should get through it in a little over a year. And I hope you'll hang on for the ride because it is going to be an awesome study in God's deliverance. Amen. Let's pray. Father.